Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. In my end is my beginning. Uh, I don't know who said that, but uh, the beginning of the nose featured uh, the panel that we have right here. It's not the end of the nose. I don't even know why I said that. And, but um, <laughs> I just wanted to be able to say something that sounded that profound. This is Colin McEnroe uh, here on the nose. This And the nose is a weekly cultural roundtable that we started X number of years ago. We don't keep good records here. Uh, we could probably figure it out if we had to. But I do know that the first three people ever to be on the nose are the people sitting before me right now. And as had been predicted, they've all gone on to uh, greater things uh, ever since. Uh, Jacques Lamar uh, is uh, now an award-winning playwright and senior project manager at Buzz Engine. Uh, Irene Papoulis uh, teaches writing at Trinity College. Uh, her work here on the nose, especially the invention of the Papoulian through line, is now extensively studied in the scholarly <laughs> realm, and there are papers being delivered by the Modern Language Association right now about Papoulian thinking. And Rand Richards Cooper is a contributing editor at Commonweal. Well, you actually were way back at the beginning, too. Uh, now writes the In Our Midst column for Hartford Magazine. So here's our plan. Our plan is a little foggy, although we've had... We've had a lot of time to discuss. I mean, we had kind of a snow day yesterday, which opened up quite a bit of surplus time to discuss what we're going to do. Uh, so here's our plan. In the first segment, we are going to discuss briefly the concept of, of resolutions. Um, then we are going to move on to the Michael Wolff book. And I think it's fair to say that even at this moment, we're not quite sure how we're going to approach the Michael Wolff book, but we are going to approach it warily as a coyote circles its prey. Uh, and then in the, uh, uh, the second segment, we are going to talk about the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Uh, that'll be a substantive conversation about a series now on Amazon Prime that we've been watching. And then at the end, we're going to make some endorsements. Uh, all right. So uh, we're going to do a very brief kind of round the table thing about endorsements. There's a piece in the New York Times uh, dated December 29th, the only way to keep your resolution. It's, it actually goes in a little bit to the social science of keeping resolutions, things that you could conceivably do to put yourself in a different kind of frame of mind where you might exercise more self-control. I don't know exactly if – I mean, is that what we want to talk about or do we each want to talk about what our approach is? To this notion. Um, well, I'll talk. I, I don't know what we all want to talk about, but I'll say that <laughs> yes, you do. the reason I liked it is because, you know, I've gone through the, the sort of stage of saying in my life of saying, like, OK, I ha it's New Year's. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be disciplined. I'm going to force myself to be disciplined. Then I've also gone through the stage of, you know, forget it. I'm not going to make any resolutions. It's ridiculous. You know, nothing's ever going to change unless I change it in a different way. It has nothing to do with New Year's. But this article says that there's something actually negative or, 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 or about making a resolution and feeling like you have to do it by sheer force of willpower. And mm -hmm. so they do this other study of the marshmallow, the famous marshmallow thing when they have with kids. And like, if you can get two marshmallows later, will you, will you wait, et cetera, that sort of determines how, how, how much self-discipline. And that whole concept of, I've always had a horrible relationship with the concept of self-discipline. And this article tells me that that concept itself is problematic. And in fact, 
social bonds and social intelligence and connecting with other people and feeling gratitude is more valuable in terms of helping you do what you want to do. And so I'm all for that. So and also pride, the good kind of pride, not overweening pride. and arrogant pride. Forget but that one. Yeah, pride. Yeah. So pride is mentioned. And, and I think, yeah, the, instead of you disgusting, selfish, uh, weak, pork face, uh, you broke your resolution. There's sort of a notion that if you believe in yourself. Focus on the good thing you did. I took one step. That's great. I'm proud. All right. Yeah. Uh, Jacques, what's your approach? Um, you know, I uh, probably for the last few years did not set any resolutions. And this year I've kind of set a bunch of them but have not been making a big deal out of letting people know about them. And that's not necessarily because of fear of failure. But it's, I think, a greater sense of just kind of being accountable only to myself so that, you know, if I'm seen doing something that I have resolved not to do, that I've been publicizing, then people will be like, oh, you're not supposed to be doing that, da, 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 and beating, beating you up. I, I'm perfectly capable of beating myself up. Well, that's an interesting point. Like what's – in some ways, I think this article um, – in a, I think, first of all, you can't generalize across all personality types. And I think you sort of ultimately have to say, what's the strongest force for me or what are the strongest forces in my life? Because for me – uh, public humiliation <laughs> would be a very big one. Yeah, uh, like that time that you lost weight, you said you had to lose a certain oh. amount of weight publicly. Okay, and, well, I'll mention yeah. this because this actually was also, I think, the result of research at Yale, I think by Ian Ayers, but don't hold me to that. So he had actually sort of come up with this idea that, first of all, that contract theory well, was a good way to do resolutions. But the problem with resolutions like that uh, is that you really have to create a substantial downside to breaking the resolution. Um, so other than just that you broke it. So what I did, first of all, is announced that I was going to lose a certain amount of weight. And I made an agreement with uh, Chris Healy, who was then the chairman of the Republican Party in Connecticut, that I would give the Republican Party $500 in a public ceremony if I didn't meet my weight loss goal. And obviously, I'm a kind of liberal Democrat. Uh, and so that was something I didn't want to do. Um, and so, yeah, and then the whole thing kind of played out. And actually, on the last day, I was like, you know, Vinnie Paz in what's that Miles Teller movie, Bleed for It or whatever it's called. <laughs> I, was, I was like wearing garbage cans and running on, you know, the treadmill and, you know, and anything plasma I plasma donations. Any, just anything I could do because I really had, I had like, I had this scale that was kind of unreliable. It was kind of five <laughs> ounces of capriciousness. So, did it make uh, it easier, though, for you to know that you had that? Well, it made it necessary. I don't think easy is not really the right word. Uh, all right, Rand, what's your uh, philosophy here? Wait, well, I want to hear if you if you had to give the five hundred dollars. Oh no, no, I, I didn't. I made weight. Okay, uh, and then I, what I did was I uh, his wife, I think, was heavily involved in Mercy House. So I gave half the money to Mercy House and half the I, I actually did part with the money. I gave half of it to Mercy House and half of it to something other charity or something. Gotcha. I wouldn't give it to any damn Republican Party, though. <laughs> Sorry, Rand. I just had to know well, the, the button you on know, that. He, he makes an interesting argument here. And he notes, first of all, that most New Year's resolutions fail and, and fail fail quickly. And, and why is that? And he says, well, willpower, self-restraint, self-control, this is the wrong tool. Um, and, uh, and, and the tools that we need to use is uh, to, to live with a larger sense of, of joy and gratitude. And then he, he uses uh, this experiment, his version of that famous marshmallow experiment, to try to show quite specifically that increasing the sense of joy, gratitude, camaraderie will actually increase your ability to think about the future. A resolution is essentially an attempt to project 
behavior in a certain way into the future. So the piece focuses specifically on the question, how do we increase that dimension of the future? And his answer to that is not more sticks, more carrots. Mm. Um, and that if you, if you live a life of friendship, camaraderie, and gratitude, not only will you be less lonely, not only will you have more fun, but in fact, you will find yourself thinking more productively about the future. Now, the only thing personally I want to say about that. I want, I want to just add two slightly contrary notes. The values that he that that he uh, encourages are unassailable. I mean, who wouldn't want you know as a parent who wouldn't want to encourage pride, gratitude, and compassion? Those are the three values. Mm. But for me, I've managed to lose weight, like Colin, for other reasons that involve willpower and self-deprivation. And there is a particular mojo to that too. If you start depriving yourself of food and, and, and exercising a lot more, after a certain point, you, you reach this sort of buzzy, you know, like you're, you're into this. You're you, proud of it and grateful for it. You're proud of it. You're grateful for it. You feel better. Um, but, I, but I will say it it's, has been my experience that, and probably we all share this to some extent, something goes well in your life, you succeed at something, uh, you have a great weekend with friends, there's this uh, sort of perfect storm of goodness that happens in your life, you suddenly feel more oriented toward getting things done. Maybe you organize your office, you say, yeah, I can do that. The project that's ambitious that you've been putting off because you were afraid of failure, I'm going to do it. I'll send this out. The friend that you've been meaning to reach out to in a very specific way, but you haven't done it, you do it. So that's the idea. Gratitude generates further gratitude. But how long does gratitude. that last? That's uh, well, problem. he's saying, the, 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 he's yeah. saying if you can jumpstart a more joyous and, and, and friendship and gratitude-based way of doing things, any tricks mm -hmm. you can do to jumpstart that, that's going to sort of perpetuate itself. All right. So we're going to move on here. Um, uh, we are going to – so last night in Washington, D.C., and possibly other cities as well. I wouldn't be surprised if this happened in New York. It was like Harry Potter night. It was 1201. There were lines in bookstores. There were more book buyers than there were books for them to have. Uh, instead of being dressed up as uh, Hermione uh, or Ron Weasley, they were dressed up as Reince Priebus and uh, <laughs> Kellyanne Conway. <laughs> no, I'm making up that part. Oh, that, that would be really good. Uh, but in fact, this is I all. I was dressed as Sean Spicer hiding in the bushes waiting for the truck to pull up. <laughs> there, there's so many choices, right? I mean, yeah. it, there's so many choices for uh, ways you could go on all this. Uh, the, the book, of course, is Fire and Fury by uh, Michael Wolf. Uh, it is based, uh, and it, I should also say that if you want one now today, here in Connecticut, good luck too. The only place I called was Barnes and Noble in Blueback Square, and they said that um, first of all, their shipment hadn't arrived, although it's supposed to, and that when it does arrive, uh, all the copies have already been reserved, and that I was welcome to put my name in for the reorder, uh, which I did not do. Uh, but anyway, that gives you an example of how much excitement. Or I mean, I think they're only getting fifteen copies, so it's not that big a deal. But anyway. Um, there, there's a lot of excitement going on. There's a lot of excitement going on at the White House where they've actually tried to sue to block further distribution of this book. It's a book by Michael Wolff. It's based on uh, some, some unprecedented access he appears to have had to the Trump White House and to the familiars uh, of Donald Trump. Uh, it makes a, a wild assortment of claims. Um, some of them are basically extensions of things that we've heard before. Um, some of them are, I think, kind of new. Uh, and then others that have been widely circulated are actually not even in the book. Uh, there is no such thing as the Gorilla Channel and there is no evidence that Donald Trump watches it even if it did exist. Uh, so anyway, there's like it's, it's developed – the whole book is not – it's barely even out. It's developed this whole kind of apocrypha, um, you know, things that don't even really belong in it. So, I mean, Irene, as we were getting ready for this – 
I think we were all thinking, well, this is very, you know, I mean, it's as they say, top of mind. Everybody's talking about it. And that's an argument both for not talking about it and for talking about it. But I think we don't really know exactly how we want to talk about it. And I think we might as well admit that too. <laughs> Although I'll bring up one thing and then you can just discard it if you want to and take us in a different direction. To me, one of the questions is, you know, can a book – change anything as big as this. You know, as all three of us here, all four of us here believe in literature at a certain level and, and in journalism and reportage and stuff like that. I, I feel like we've arrived at a moment where a book doesn't really necessarily have the power to do the kinds of things we're talking about. Yeah, but this book seems to have a lot of power. You know, there's been a lot of books, you know, and ideas and everything, but why is it about, what is it about this particular book that's a frenzy? I mean, part of it is maybe people, it was a slow news day or whatever, and then it sort of like took over cable news completely. But um, I think it sounds, you know, it, it also, I think part of it is that it confirms things that we suspected and 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 sort of imagined to be true that, um, that that are that are now etched in stone or etched in a book. You know, is a book different from an article? You know, there've been a lot of articles like this. Why is this book different? You know, I'm not quite sure. I I think a lot of it springs from uh, Steve Bannon and it being you know a real open salvo uh, in in uh, turning the tide on their relationship. Obviously, something went sour before, but I think for Steve Bannon to use the words treasonous, you know, or use the word treasonous regarding um, meetings at the at the Trump Tower and Donald Trump then completely belittling and writing off um, Bannon's um, uh, role in his campaign and in his White House, I think suddenly paved the way to wait, you know, what's at the epicenter of this? And it's the book. So I, I don't know if you agree on that, Colin. Well, but. well, Jacques, I want to just ask you because you are our expert about so many different things, uh, <laughs> including reality television. And so there's, yes. there's sort of a way in which many of the things that happen within the orbit of the Trump presidency, because it has its origins in reality television, they tend to acquire the status of reality television. And I wouldn't be surprised to find out that, you know, at some point in the Helmer seven or what years of The Apprentice, if that's how many there were, you know, that Donald Trump tore, told Gary Busey he was engaging in treasonous behavior or something, you know, and and there's a way in which this doesn't seem like the real White House. I mean, it hasn't ever seemed like the real White House. So when things get said of that magnitude, yeah. I wonder if they have the same status as they would have if, you know, Paul Volcker said them or something, you know, <laughs> in some previous administration. Well, I think, you know, uh, looking at, at the White House as a reality show, I mean, how many of us really had the awareness of the cast of characters that populated the Obama or even the, you know, George W. Bush White House? I mean, we are so familiar with all of these names that I wasn't, as I was reading articles about the Wolf book, that I was not having to like dive, you know, through to Google to find out who is this person, what's their role, what have you. I mean, it's it's a cast of characters that we've come to know and um, not necessarily love. But I think, you know, like when Hillary Clinton's book came out, I had no burning desire to 
to read it because I knew that it was going to be um, highly selective and and subjective and what have you. And I mean, obviously, this reporter has is going to have an angle, what have you. But he's a person who doesn't necessarily have a horse in the race, the way that Hillary Clinton does, and 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 you know, keeping her legacy or what have you, or even Donna Brazile's book, uh, which I was kind of interested in reading. But this, I'm actually. Because I like reading Vanity Fair and other things that uh, are tawdry but dress themselves up as intellectual, uh, <laughs> that I actually would look forward to to reading this book. And it's a com- it's because it's a combination of g- gossip and real facts about our government. You know, I mean, mm. it's just such a bizarre combination. Yeah, it's sort of like a Dominic Dunn. You know, when he would sort of report w- from within society, but about. New York society or what have you. And so reading these Dominic Dunn books where he's kind of an observer and also sitting at the table, I always found really kind of fascinating. These people would say stuff to him knowing that it could very well end up in Vanity Fair or in a book. Ivanka is the real wife and Hope Hicks is the real daughter. Yeah. You know? These are the kinds of things that like are that. very interesting at the level yeah. of reality television. Yeah. All right, Rand, I have a specific question for you, but uh, I want to just uh, hear what you're thinking right now. Well, I think one one reason the book is so instantly popular is that you know liberals have spent like like me like us have spent the last year going around, especially when when we deal with people who may have uh, uh, in our friends and families who may have voted for Trump. We keep going around saying you know holding up the latest thing that either outrages us or alarms us or seems just so brazenly non-presidential. And we keep holding it up and saying, okay, do you see this? Do you see it now? Do you get it now? And the answer to that is always no, because the conversation is profoundly an apples and oranges conversation. And we keep holding up an apple and, and you know, people on the other side of this conversation keep, you know, saying, well, that's, that's, so what? That's an apple, but this thing's an orange. And, and I think each time anew, the, the, the liberal person grasps at something and says, well, here it is. Finally, finally, you're going to see things the way I do. The prospect of, of Trump and his brain, Bannon, being separated um, is, I think, very exciting to, uh, to, you know, to people on the left because they think maybe somewhere here they're perceiving a crack um, that 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 one uh, one part of Trump's base of support is gonna is gonna peel away from another part, and that's a hopeful sign. Now, I'll I'll add for me, you know, more personally, I I found in the past year, and I see I think uh, I have a sort of tripartite way of responding to the Trump reality of the Trump president. Part of it is to sort of be darkly amused, and and what you've said so far about this is a reality show. That's sort of that capacity. It's like oh my god. Um, part of it is is to be uh, become a kind of activist. I do that by writing, and I, I have I must have written twenty five columns for Commonweal about Trump, um, and and many of them are, are are sort of outraged and alarmed. And the third part of my response has been to sort of duck and hide. And I've practiced more denial uh, in the past year than I'm comfortable with, honestly. You know, hearing this or that news story and turning it off because you know I can't I I can't take it. So I find all of these things are in play when I respond to this book. I'm kind of amused at the thought of Trump's brain being Frankenstein in a sort of Frankenstein-like mood, being separated from him. Will Bannon survive? Will the brain survive without Trump? Will Trump survive without the yeah, brain? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it, yeah, so that's, it's like there's this reality behind it of, is this the end of democracy? You know, because they're trying to sort of, you know, um, 
you know, end democracy in the sense of controlling all the branches of government and having all this power. And so we see that going on. And so I feel like this gives us an out, too. You well, know, I think also the fact that 100 percent of the people he talked to within the Trump White House believe that their boss is incompetent. Right. And that's the uh, point. Mentally and unstable. that's so alarming. You know, honestly, at the end, I found if this article was actually trying to reassure us, saying, you know what, whatever you think about Trump, this book reveals that he's actually more competent than, than you might think. I, I would be reassured. This this stuff's really alarming. Anyone, even in his in, in his inner sanctum, anyone who deals with him thinks he's incompetent. And, and the, you just and said it, shock. The Republicans keep keep supporting him. You know, it's it's just kind of amazing. Yeah, Although, one thing that I do want to say is like at the level of analogies, there's sort of a way in which, okay, Michael Wolff, who's a journalist I've been aware of for a long time. I think he used, was been on, maybe on my old WTIC show a few times. He may have even been on this show at some point. But he's a showman in a lot of ways. And there are ways in which certain claims made in this book even the ones that are actually in it, kind of don't really necessarily seem to hold water that well. On the other hand, it's clear that he did have an almost unprecedented amount of access to the West Wing. And it's sort of hard to sort all this out. And in a way, he is to, I don't know, Michael Beschloss or, you know, Maggie Haberman or something, what Trump is to Barack Obama, which is to say, you know, in a way, he's sort of the journalist that the Trump administration Trump administration <laughs> deserves, you know, in the sense that he's probably more interested in what's entertaining. I mean, there's, there's sort of ways in which, you know, Donald Trump, one of the things he's done over the course ever since 2015 or maybe longer is just say things that were outrageous or untrue uh, and, and just not really worry about that. And so Say, well, you deal with that. That's your problem that I just said that Barack Obama's born in Kenya. You know, that's not my problem. Uh, and, and Wolf is doing that a little bit too. It's like he's saying these things, which if all of them are true and if it's really true that 100 percent of the people in the White House think that this man is dangerously out of touch with reality and if it's true – I thought the most chilling thing that I read uh, from the Wolf book so far is this thing where he goes back to Mar-a-Lago uh, about a month ago and walks around and doesn't recognize some of his longtime friends. Um, and, and it says that the, his aides are very used to the fact that in 30-minute intervals, he will start the same story all over again and tell it with all the same details and all the same facial expressions. And they just see that as kind of a tick of his, that he forgets that 30 minutes ago he told this exact story. I think it's a little He's bit like more. a nasty Reagan. <laughs> I mean, Reagan had some of these right. traits. Yeah. He was a cipher. He didn't have friends. He told stories over and over again. But he was a he was a, apparently in a conventional way a gracious person. A, you know, a kind person. He's like Trump is like Reagan. You know, without, without the nice parts. Surrounded by people who had a degree of competency for the positions that they were in. You know, like Casper uh, like Weinberger. Yeah. Um, Colin, you asked at the beginning, can a book like this change anything? What, what do you want it to change? Well, I mean, I think a lot of people are thinking, oh, well, maybe this is the tipping point. People keep waiting for a tipping point. And, and my point about this is that, no, it, this book is probably not going to change. The only thing that it could possibly change is, um, is that, I mean, there's a whole movement going on and we are, in fact, going to have um, – uh, the one of the psychiatrists behind it to really get Congress engaged in the question of whether this guy's mental health is adequate or whether the 25th Amendment needs to be invoked. And in a very sort of pop culture way, maybe this book kind of feeds into it. But one thing that I sort of see looking back at Watergate is that 
books and reportage and the press, they can't do anything all by themselves. They have to work. They have to be in a symbiotic relationship with things that are actually going on on the ground. And since it's a Republican-controlled Congress, until a lot of Republicans say, you know, in the manner of Hugh Scott and people like that at the t- – and Weicker, obviously, and people like that at the time of Watergate, this is real. We have to do something about it. Then nothing but, changes. So but, but they're the going to start the process of disengaging from him as they head into the midterm elections? Yeah, but disengaging and then like actively wanting to to join some kind of you know move to take him out is different. But Colin, isn't yeah. that that process that you just described one reason why people are excited about this book? Because if Bannon, um, dark prince that he is, I mean, in many ways, Bannon is worse than Trump. But if Bannon has disengaged and he's a, if he's able to bring some quantum ex quantum faction with him then maybe that process that you're talking about, which is ultimately a, a political process, I mean, why is it? How did the Republicans mm-hmm. finally come to be willing to get rid of Nixon? If anything like that is going to happen, it's going to have to happen step by step, stage by stage. And, and it builds a book like that builds public opinion because everyone's talking about it. So maybe more, even though a lot of people would say, oh, this is just you know, propaganda, there's more people in the middle that might say, wow, this is amazing. Yeah, I mean, it is a symbiotic relationship that kind of feeds back and forth on itself. Although I would say that Bannon is an extremist. The people that he's going to take with him are not, they're not the Hugh Scotts. They're not the Howard Bakers. You know, they're not the Lowell Wikers. They're guys who just want to go up in the hills, you know, and wait this out so they can There are no politicians who are going with him. Yeah, and whereas, I mean, you really do need the Paul Ryans and the Mitch McConnells and the people like that who who dislike Bannon and are not answerable to him. So, so he's not a factor that way. The book's kind of too trashy, I think, to have the kind of gravitas it would need to really something a little bit more. But do you think in in, in conjunction with, say, the New York Times interview that he did and the the uh, the things that are coming out about obstruction regarding Comey's firing and and the the Russian investigation, even this bizarre presser that he did where he was on TV, you know, in the White House media room? Uh, you know, that we we could reach a critical mass. Yeah, I mean, there, there may be a moment where he, you know, comes on TV and wants to know who took the strawberries and, you know, I mean, at that point. But Jacques, who is the we? Nothing happens until some sizable proportion of the voters in red states who voted for him yeah. change their mind. And we have to stop yeah. there just right. so we'll have time for The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which Ooh, we spent yes. a lot of time uh, learning about. Uh, so we'll do that. We'll take a break. We'll come back. Biggest fan in the world. And uh, if I may, uh, what is your response to the headlines claiming that your White House is in total chaos? There's zero chaos. We are running. This is a fine-tuned machine. I won. I mean, it's story after story after story. You're rambling endlessly, Donald. You sound like my drunk Aunt Susanna Thanksgiving. You can't just say what you want, Donald. We are back. We are here with the the fundamentals uh, of uh, of the nose, uh, the original uh, wise aliens who came here to teach us the founding nostrils. There we go. That's a better (laughs) way to put it. Rand Rand Richards Cooper is one of the people. You just heard him. Uh, Jacques Lamar and uh, Irene Papoulis. The first time there was ever a nose, it was these three. Uh, and I don't think you've been reunited very many times no. since then. Maybe once. Good so, to be. It's good to be. Yeah. So um, we're going to be talking about the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. This is a comedy, uh, and I sort of stress that word in an odd way because it's not just a comedy. It's on Amazon Prime. It's the story uh, of a woman, a 
awakening in the late 1950s in a conventional Jewish marriage located on the Upper West Side of New York City. Uh, a woman awakening realizing that A, her husband's not that funny. B, she is that funny. Uh, C, her life is about to fall apart in lots of uh, pretty disturbing ways. And D, that maybe salvation exists for her in comedy performed in dingy comedy clubs, specifically the Gaslight, a storied Greenwich Village uh, club where she often will just show up unannounced and unbooked uh, and take over the stage and empty her soul. We're going to hear a clip of her doing this. This is, I think, the third time she pops up on that stage. I mean, if my kids got kidnapped and I had to describe them, I'd have to say, they look like kids. I, I don't know, the who's it's got a head, the other one's it got a head. <laughs> Anyone know this <laughs> Dr. Spock? I had never read this. Not until my son started doing this really weird thing where I wake up and he's staring at me like he's planning things. And, and I'm thinking, well, right now he's small. I can take it, but in a few years. <laughs> so I turn to the expert. And one of the things he says is, trust yourself. You know more than you think you do. Are you kidding me? That was his sage advice. You got this? Trust me. I don't got this. And now, now I'm thinking, what if I wasn't supposed to be a mother? What if I picked the wrong profession? If you're afraid of blood, you don't become a surgeon. If you don't like to fly, you don't join Pan Am. I, I can't change my mind and donate my kids to the library like I'm going to do with this book. <laughs> All right, that's uh, Rachel Brosnahan uh, as the uh, marvelous uh, Mrs. Maisel, uh, and uh, that is her performing comedy. Uh, there's an awful lot more going on in this. Um, we should say that this is a creation of Amy Sherman Palladino, a name that didn't mean too much to me because I've never, ever seen an episode of the Gilmore Girls. Uh, but Rand, uh, you had to overcome a certain trepidation. I did. Um, uh, the Gilmore Girls, of which I've seen a number of episodes in part, is probably my wife's all-time favorite TV show. Um, she's seen every episode multiple times, and she and, and our 11-year-old daughter actually spent yesterday binge-watching Gilmore Girl episodes while I watched this on my on my computer. I, I don't know what you guys think about Gilmore Girls, but I, I have always been... There's probably no other show I can name that is, is so well-written and of such high quality that I absolutely can't stand. I am completely allergic to that show, and it has to do specifically with a certain pace and sound and shape of dialogue that's sort of her, her, her trademark signature. It's sort of speeded up, deadpan, ironic, comic dialogue. And I, for some reason, I just, I absolutely can't stand it. So I thought I was going to really dislike this show. I really borderline love this show. I, I really like it a lot. I think it's got a lot going for it. That would just be my first take on it. We can talk more about why. Jacques, yeah, I'm just going to let you, each of you, sound off in however way you want to. Uh, you know, well, I, I've never watched Gilmore Girls. Uh, I've never been to Stars Hollow in uh, Connecticut. Um, so I, I went into this a bit cold. I had actually not heard of the series. Um, so I was, um, I was extremely delighted with it. Um, I found there to be some, you know, weird anachronisms that were, that were going on. But um, I... Uh, I really like um, Joan Rivers in a lot of ways, and I sort I see a lot of the beginning of Joan Rivers' career. And I remember reading her first memoir. She wrote several, 
uh, but one called Enter Laughing. And there are moments in it that are very funny, but there are moments that are extremely heartbreaking. And, you know, the difficulty of being a woman, uh, particularly in that time period, um, trying to not only get out of the expectations of what you were going to be as a a uh, young Jewish woman in in New York City, but then to go into a male-dominated field that requires a degree of raunch and and uh, attitude. So it was uh, there were there are things that I remember from reading that that memoir, like where choosing a stage name. Her original Joan Rivers' original stage name was Pepper January, comedy with spice, <laughs> and. <laughs> And uh, she would have to do, you know, stand up between strip acts, and and uh, you know, her parents were mortified at her choices and her perseverance. Um, so I, there was a lot about it that I really, really liked. Yeah. Irene, yeah, um, I uh, my parents lived in New York during that time, and I was born into that into that New York uh, going to nightclubs kind of world, and. Um, so that the it was it a lot there was a lot of fantasy. I've always had the fantasy of like, wow, wouldn't that be cool to go to all those nightclubs and everything? And so I was drawn in. I really it was such a great thing to watch during a snow day of just being drawn into this to this uh, New York City world. And um, you know, in a way, I saw it though as a cross between Mad Men and Legally Blonde, <laughs> because there was a <laughs> lot of you know her 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 attitude and her um, her her frustration at the, you know, just the way her mother was, was hilarious, you know, like the way you're supposed to, you know, you can't eat anything because you have to be slim and all the rules of womanhood and the girdles. And, you know, my mother wore a girdle just like that and uh, like she did. And so all those kind of details about girdles and metaphorical girdles that were holding her in. So it's the same kind of thing, but even beyond the world of comedy also. Yeah, I just want to say, you know, David Halberstam wrote this book about the 50s, and, and one of his arguments was that many of the things we ascribe to the 60s as being uh, this time of foment and social change really happened in the 50s. Uh, and, and I do see this very much in that vein, that there's, um, just as in acting, you know, Marlon Brando and James Dean, but Brando in particular came along and said, you know what, authenticity is more important than all this craft, you know? I mean, just really, you know, this sort of method acting and inhabiting the role. I'm going to act in a completely different way. And that was kind of going on in comedy, too. It started in 53 with Mort Saul and then moved on to Lenny Bruce, who, as you'll see, is featured in this thing. And this, to me, is very much a series about stripping away artifice, that when she can get up on stage and she just pours her heart out, she doesn't know any craft. She's trying to learn craft, but just pouring out her heart and she just happens to be a person who thinks she's living in a comedy, no matter how bad things get. She's perfect for that moment, I think, and she becomes kind of a symbol of that moment. There's a, I think in that regard, there's a Sylvia Plath-like, albeit in a- You are the only person so far to make a Sylvia Plath (laughs) connection. Well, there's a Sylvia (laughs) Plath-like, albeit in a comic vein, uh, connection here in that Sylvia Plath was a person who, on the one hand, lived according to a rigid code of conformity to to a sort of housewife, uh, uh, middle class uh, ideas of how a woman should behave. But at the same time, within her, she had this this burning genius that was going to find its way out. That's the way the character of Miriam is presented here. And one of the many things that's attractive about the show is that we see right away in episode one that uh, that she's a very strong woman. Um, married to an affable but weak man. 
and uh, and we see her energy and her desire to achieve and accomplish, but it's very much restrained by an almost pathological conventionality. So we see her with her other young white friends and one of one of them. She constantly measures her like her calf, her thighs, uh, to 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 see what her own proportions are. And her friend says, "God, you're so proportional. How long how long have you been measuring yourself like that?" And she says, "Every day for ten years." Well, you know, this is obviously terrible, but we get to see within a very benighted and conventional role, qualities of a person that is going to be the business of the show to, to bring out because and, there's, and, a, there's a spectacular person yeah, in there. Yeah, all those women had to channel, you know, their creative energy into the, I'll make my body perfect. I'll do this. I'll go to, I'll, I'll have the perfect dinner. I'll serve the right, have the right parties. I'll look right. I'll dress right. I'll go to those exercises classes. That that was a hilarious scene with the exercise classes mm-hmm. with the uh, elastic bands that they had to hold right. them over there. And the bottles. <laughs> yeah, and the bottles. Well, and and by the way, beautifully yeah. shot too. This right. is yeah. beautifully photographed. Yeah. And, and Irene, this is sort of a thing that I know from your past work that you're very interested in is that question of being good. Uh, mm-hmm. And so there's an, an awful lot of the uh, – I mean, this doesn't all take place in comedy clubs. A lot of it takes place on the Upper West Side where she is almost a prisoner but a prisoner with an awful lot of uh, ability to, to move around of her parents who are very controlling people. Tony Shalhoub brilliantly plays hilarious. this Columbia professor yeah. uh, father who has like these very restrictive ideas about what his daughter who's 26 or 28 years old uh, and has two kids of her own should be able to do. Um, uh, uh, and the woman who's playing her mother whose name is escaping my mind right now it's somewhere in my notes is also kind of wonderful that way. But it's that idea of being good like, what does it mean yeah. to be good and to be valued for being good? Right. And it, and it can be torturous, you know. And so that was one thing I didn't b- really believe about the about the show, that she was kind of content and happy with her life before before things ca- kind of got stirred up. You know, I think there was a sort of suggestion of her and her mother having their little glasses of Manischewitz or whatever they were drinking. Um, but she just she I just sort of felt like, wait a minute. She she couldn't have just been completely content until this moment. But, you know, it's, and, yeah, I think she was living the life that she had been sort of, you know, uh, molded to live. And then that, uh, you know, I don't want to give away the moment, but, you know, moment where she realizes that her husband is false is when a lot of the artifice that surrounds her starts to the cracks start to show. But that was the whole, you know, Betty Friedan's the feminine mystique. You know, these women did it and then they just felt, you know. Depre- it wasn't it, you couldn't just say, oh, wow, I'm living the dream. This is fantastic. You know, yeah. there was a because the dream wasn't that fun. Could I, could I mount one little criticism, criticism against this? I really enjoyed it, too. I've watched parts of it twice now already. There are things about it that I just think are terrific the way it does work with period. As Jacques, I think, was suggesting before, it's a little inaccurate with period. And sometimes there's a Streisand song being played that really wasn't recorded for another four years or or little odd bits of language that really are more from our time than from theirs. But but um, I think it really does those things extremely well. And having like, you know, Jane Jacobs, the <laughs> theorist, <laughs> have, have that be one of the period cameos is kind of you have to take your hat off to that. But, Rand, one thing I did struggle with with this thing is tone. And I do think that it vacillates a, a bit on tone from, ranging from a kind of pseudo-realist approach to human relations to a more sticky conventionally sitcom, maybe the kind of thing you don't like about Gilmore Girls. Uh, I mean, you have people who, this is a remarkable remarkable performance by Alex Borstein as this um, 
sort of androgynous uh, manager. And, and a lot of times she's kind of gritty and funny in a way that's kind of recognizably human. And then she'll do these goofy things like just, you know, be so worried on the phone that she'll say her name is Mrs. Miniver or something like that, which just nobody would do. Uh, and I struggled a little bit with that. Like it's Sherman Palladino hadn't picked a tone. Well, if you listen to some of the ways we've been discussing it in terms of the severe limitation of women's roles in that time, you think, well, this is probably a tragedy. But I mean, we're discussing uh, these severe confinement and constraints. But in, in tone, this is mostly a jaunty, up-tempo comedy. I was reminded of Woody Allen. It seemed like it had, especially in the use of period music, like in, I think the second episode, she goes back to the old diner where she and her husband on their, on their, uh, the, the morning after their wedding had gone. And, and there's this uh, very sort of uh, uh, burbling Yiddish music that's very funny. It was the Barry sisters. I was so excited. And, 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 and then it, it segues into Dance Only With Me, uh, that, that beautiful sort of haunting rendition. Um, and and I, I often thought this, this film has specifically the kind of nostalgia infused with real energy that Woody Allen keeps trying to get in his, in his movies now and so often misses. But it, 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 but it's, it is, I do think it is inconsistent in tone and partly it's because it's requiring her to be almost schizophrenic character who seems hopelessly innocent and naive at one minute and then suddenly gets on stage, maybe gets a little drunk, uh, gets a little high and gets on stage and suddenly she's like female Lenny Bruce and it, it ricochets back and forth between the world of her and the idiom of her extreme innocence and then this, as Colin said before, raunchy <laughs> world where she's like this raunch genius. Um, actually, maybe we should just stop there so we'll have time for endorsements. But uh, first of all, uh, the series is The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. You can find it on Amazon Prime and only on Amazon Prime at the moment. Uh, it stars Rachel Brosnahan uh, and many other people besides. And lots of really interesting little cameos. Of course, Wallace Shawn is in this because Wallace Shawn has to be in basically everything. <laughs> um, and anyway, we'll come back and we'll make some recommendations. With my eyelashes all and curled, I float as the clouds on air. Today's show is produced by the marvelous Nick Pants and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish is performing at Catch a Rising Fish this weekend, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Milton Burl. On Monday's show, The Scramble revisits the question of the president's mental health. And now, back to Colin. All right, so we're going to uh, recommend some things. I think we're all re reasonably willing to recommend it was going to be part of our comedy conversation because I made everybody listen to it. Uh, the uh, recent, recently re-aired episode of This American Life uh, on which, in which a French comedian uh, tries to make it in America, tries to make it in a different language, tries to make it with different sensibilities. Uh, and uh, I don't know, Rand, maybe you just quickly want to say something about Well, this it's very cool were. because he's the most popular stand-up comic in France and he's tired of his fame so he decides to come to America, the, the birthplace of stand-up comedy, and make it here in a foreign language, which is a very bold and brave thing to do. It's pieces largely about how difficult it is to translate comedy across linguistic and cultural borders. It's a fascinating yeah. topic. And then at the end, Jeff Garland, a comedian best known for uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, talks about how he's got to be more authentic in very much the way that uh, is played out in, in, Mitch, uh, in Mrs. Maisel, that somehow or other he has to talk about things that are more important to him. All right, let's go to, uh, back yeah. to regular old recommendations. All right, well, that made me think about 
um, Issa Rae. I think she's so great. The mm. the the HBO so show Insecure, and then before that, she had Adventures of Awkward Black Girl, which is a web series, and she's just so for awkward people anywhere. She's just so funny. I think. We're doing a show on awkwardness, you know. Really? Yeah. Oh, do you want to so, be on it? Sure. I'm totally awkward. <laughs> that was sort of an insulting <laughs> that was That was an awkward question. That moment. was an awkward question. Yeah. You, you said for awkward people everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I definitely put myself in you those ranks. You left the ranks. door open. Yeah. I also quickly want to endorse the uh, restaurant called um, Flora in West Hartford. It, it's a vegan restaurant. Great atmosphere because it's in the old um, American Legion Hall and, it, and they sort of preserve some of the feel of it. Like my son went and he said it's like being in a rich person's living room. In there, and Which they is have, not how the American Legion Hall is. Uh, well, that's true. But it's anyway, it's hard to explain, but it was more like that. I've never, uh, anyway. Uh, and um, it's vegan, but they also have what they call a viable fauna, which is, you know, <laughs> grass fed beef and stuff like that on the side for right. people who have to. It's delicious. It's a term popular among Where coyotes. Is this? It's, uh, it's right, uh, it's right opposite from Whole Foods. Across from Whole Foods. In, in, uh, on Raymond Road. And you can have, you may have okay. heard uh, the episode recently where uh, Chris Prosperi and I ate the Impossible Burger, which was the genetically engineered. Engineered vegetable-based burger that bleeds and tastes like meat. I mean, really tastes like meat. They do serve it there, so it's one of the few places you can get it. Jacques, I'm sorry, I'm making a face that your audience cannot see. <laughs> um, I'm I'm going to uh, endorse and do a plug. Um, first, I want to endorse based on um, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel uh, that if you if you have the ability to either go to YouTube or on things like Tidal or what have you, I went and was revisiting some of the work of Hartford's own Toadie Fields, uh, who was you know, a stand-up, female stand-up comedian um, until she was no longer able to stand up. Uh, but even then she kept on. Um, but she she does this, this segment on going to her Weaver High reunion. That's hilarious. Um, so I, I recommend investigating Toadie Fields, um, Hartford's own. Uh, and then also uh, just a plug uh, that a piece um, that I wrote uh, is uh, and will be for the first time uh, really uh, performing um, – a piece that I've written um, called Red State Road Trip. I'm going to be doing it at the Unitarian Society, uh, Unitarian Meeting House on Bloomfield Avenue. Um, their website is ushartford.com. Uh, and it's about my road trip to Missouri and Arkansas this past summer. When, Jacques? When are you doing uh, oh, it? Oh, sorry. Yes. January 19th at 8 p.m. at the Unitarian Meeting House. Again, ushartford.com. show is called Red State Road Trip. And as is the case with Mrs. Maisel, Jacques will be arrested at the end of this. Yes. Um, <laughs> I will flash the audience and then be arrested. <laughs> All right. Rand, what have you got? Okay. From the shameless self-promotion department, uh, uh, 60 years ago, 2018 is the 60th anniversary of publication of Lolita. Lolita was published because of the intervention of a very bold publisher named Walter Minton who's now a 94-year-old. Uh, Colin, you know his daughter, Jenny Minton Quigley. Mm -hmm. uh, I have in the current New Yorker in the Talk of the Town section a short piece about Ooh. Walter Minton's career and, and his role in the publication of that book. Cool. Um, from the shameless friend promotion department, my friend Michael Robinson, who's a historian of science and exploration at the University of Hartford, has a great podcast called Time to Eat the Dogs that covers various issues and interviews all sorts of people. Clearly an Amundsen reference. An Amundsen res reference, exactly, and it's terrific. So Michael Robinson, time to eat the dogs. Quickly, uh, a last thing. Next Tuesday, I will be at uh, the Yukon Culinary Olympics, which is a great annual event. 
um, that has uh, uh, 12 teams of Yukon chefs doing a sort of Iron Chef co- cooking competition. I'll be there with Chris Presperry and Tyler Anderson, the recent Top Chef contestant, will be judging this. It's a lot of fun. You, re- you get to just stand there and watch people cook. There are other things going on, cake decoration co- contests. It's a, it's a great day. I've been doing this for years. So just look. You can Google Yukon Culinary Olympics. Olympics. It's next Tuesday afternoon. On behalf of Chubbies everywhere, do you get to eat? Uh, <laughs> you, there are some eating opportunities, but okay. it's primarily a looking <laughs> right. opportunity. But they want to know what your New Year's resolutions are before you eat. Um, all right. So um, very quickly, uh, some stuff I've just got to sort of sweep up. So the This American Life episode we were talking about before is number 596. It was called Becoming a Badger. So if you want to find that, a French comedian. It really is fascinating, uh, everything that he goes through. Uh, and uh, if you want to call our voicemail number to tell a story about something awkward that happened to you, that's 860-580-9677. Just wait 10 minutes because Irene wants to call first. Uh, and then uh, is there anything else I have to say? Okay. Um, so I have to quickly tell, um, uh, mention a couple of things. Here's an easy one. If you just want to sort of entertain yourself in a very mindless way for four minutes, go on YouTube or just you know, with any search engine and type Coyote Plays with Cat. Uh, and it's a cat and a coyote who've been brought up together, and they're in this living room <laughs> just having the best time. It's so weird, though. Like, the coyote does all these coyote things, and, and you know, you think he's about to eat the cat, and then he doesn't. He, they're having a, a lot of fun together. Um, uh, on a more on a semi-more serious note, so Lenny Bruce is heavily featured in Mrs. Maisel. Uh, there's a terrific actor doing a, a almost chillingly accurate impersonation of Lenny. The early Lenny Bruce work is incredible, and, and I actually think one of the interesting things that you can do is read it in transcript. Um, it actually works pretty well. So in particular, I am going to recommend, there's actually a website called scrapsfromtheloft.com where they specialize in transcriptions of stand-up comedy. Um, scrapsfromtheloft.com. And you can find Lenny Bruce's 1965 Berkeley um, concert uh, transcribed there where he has this kind of Jean-Jacques Rousseau-like theory uh, of of civil society that he explains that involves crap for the most part. Uh, but it's hilarious and it's brilliant and it's sort of why Lenny Bruce is important. And I think reading it in transcript actually kind of works pretty well. Um, so anyway, that's the, those are my recommendations. But any kind of rediscovery of Lenny Bruce that you might do, he's so much more important than people understand. All right. Oh, this is Grayson Hugh. Oh, I was supposed to promote one of Grayson's gigs and I don't have it in front of me. But anyway, if Grayson Hugh is performing anywhere near you... Go see Grayson Hugh. I wish I knew where it was I was supposed to say that he was performing that. GraysonHugh.com. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah